The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book. And you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here. And on this episode of the Cannabis Business Coach podcast, I have a special guest. That's Bob Hoban, who is the founder of Hoban Law Group, which has, if, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but I'm pretty sure is the first and the largest cannabis focused law firm in the world. Am I right that's, about that? that? Well, that's that that certainly uh, appears to be correct. Uh, that's not to anyone else's detriment, but uh, we <laughs> that we've 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 been focused on building it out uh, for that purpose. Uh, so uh, I, I believe that to be accurate, but uh, you never know. Amazing. So that's uh, and you got started in wow many years ago. Was it two thousand eight, two thousand nine? Yeah. So you know how I got into this industry was. Um, you know, I'm no stranger to cannabis, and I've always been supportive of cannabis reform efforts. Um, the idea of cannabis, uh, as it relates to a legal career, um, would have been defined by being a criminal defense attorney, uh, uh, as I was going to law school, and, and and that's not something I've ever done. I I did work as a public defender one uh, summer during law school, but uh, I was not on the path necessarily to becoming a criminal practitioner. Uh, that's very, very challenging and difficult work. Um, I found my role uh, in practicing on the civil side in working for a couple, uh, a federal court and a state court judge. Uh, and ultimately, how I got into cannabis, the practice, um, was my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 05. Uh, and when she was diagnosed, she was told that she had about six months to live. And uh, I grew up in New Jersey, southern New Jersey, and I live in Colorado. Uh, my children were very young at the time, so I bought a little condo, and I'd have my mother come out uh, when she wasn't undergoing her chemotherapy in New Jersey so that she could have a relationship with the kids, understanding that this was going to be a short timeline. And I very quickly began to see the impact that the opioids and some of the other regimen of pills uh, took on a human being, particularly someone that wasn't healthy, uh, and particularly someone that was, uh, you know, that had a hard, had a hard time eating uh, anyway, which is always, you know, the basis. You have to eat to take an opiate just to not have that destroy your stomach. Uh, and then you don't have a, an appetite, so you can't eat. It's sort of this catch-22. So my initial thought was, I, I, know, I knew about the medicinal properties of cannabis, but very minimally. So that thinking about how can I help my mother um, at least get an appetite, if not an attitude adjustment, and we know that cannabis is reliable for both of those things without the science. I mean, anecdotally, uh, you know, time and again, you can understand that those things are, are necessarily connected. So in doing so, uh, we came to recognize that, you know, Colorado um, had a marijuana program, but it wasn't a commercial regulated program. It was more of an exception to uh, criminal justice. You wouldn't get arrested if you were a caregiver or if you were possessing cannabis for a recognized condition. So we got my mom registered and ultimately went online because there weren't dispensaries at the time and um, began to source different cannabis products. She would never smoke flour. Uh, I wasn't going to buy flour and then make cookies or something like that. I've been down that road and that probably wasn't the precise experience that a, a cancer patient was looking for. 
and I wasn't about to run that risk. So we found some caregivers online, cookies, oils, crackers, things like that. Uh, and then it helped her. And she lived for three and a half years, three of those years with, with, uh, with no opiates whatsoever. So a pretty remarkable uh, introduction to me to what later became a cannabis industry. Uh, as a result of that, uh, we opened up or helped open up some of the first dispensaries here in the state of Colorado. Uh, and then recognizing that was a niche that we were uniquely experienced in. And we took that show on the road. So that's, uh, that's how I was introduced to uh, the practice of law as it surrounds cannabis um, in a way that you would have never seen, like I said, not as a criminal practitioner. Amazing. Oh, thank you for sharing that story about your mother and how you got into the cannabis business. Um, and, you know, that was the start of things. And since then, you've done a tremendous job in just building out the Hoban Law Group and giving, um, you know, so many other attorneys an opportunity to, to work in the industry and to support this industry and to grow this industry, which ultimately you can't do without, without help on the legal side of things if you want to do anything in this industry because it's so regulated and, and so complicated. So, you know, you've really been a pioneer in, in this industry and helping to grow it. Um, so thank you for, for all that you do. And I'm excited to, to have you here and to ask you, you know, what does the cannabis landscape look like to you right now? That's a great question. And, and again, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate being here and, 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 and enjoy this conversation already. Um, to, to think about um, what does the cannabis landscape represent, to your point a moment ago, you kind of have to look back and see where it's come from. Now, we as an industry would not be here if we didn't get to stand on the shoulders of decades and decades and decades of hard work by so many uh, reform activists that set the table so that it was even possible to have a medical marijuana program looked at at a state level um, with, uh, with respect and you know, uh, as a viable policy alternative. Uh, so, so many folks had fought and suffered and led the way so that it could become uh, the cannabis industry. I always like to say, what happens when a movement becomes an industry? Well, that's what's happening before your very eyes, right? You're seeing this notion of a movement surrounding marijuana, whether for medical use or simple criminal justice reform or adult use, being transformed into something that's regulated. And now it's global. So that's perhaps the most exciting thing. And you know, to your point, I have tried to do everything. I've tried to do as much as I possibly could because that's just the way my, my, my mind operates. I wanted to get myself involved in so many different things early on. I began to teach at the University of Denver from 2011 to 2016, teaching cannabis policy, uh, regulations and advocacy. Uh, very proud that so many of my students now work in the industry and make a good living doing so. When they came into my class wide eyes going, saying, well, we're going to talk about cannabis, you know, as if it was a taboo topic, so, as you, you've probably seen many, many times. Uh, and the idea that there's such a thing now as a cannabis attorney. Um, people go to school specifically to be a cannabis attorney. You don't set out to do these things. You just work hard for your clients and you follow your ambition and your drive and, you know, you roll up your sleeves and you get things done. And ultimately, 
uh, it leads to where things are today. Then there's been challenges from a legal perspective as to whether it's ethical uh, under the rules of professional conduct and responsibility to practice in this area, although most of that um, is clear now. But given all those things, where we are today is we're at a very exciting time. This time, though, does not make the activist folks extremely happy sometimes. Sometimes they look at the work that they've done and they've said, we never intended this to be a, a privileged endeavor that's regulated at the states for tax dollars and driven by money and you know, driven by folks that don't have anything to do with cannabis reform, or at least traditionally haven't. So that has ruffled a lot of feathers. I recognize that. And I've sort of tried to take that mantle and say, my job, as I perceive it, is not so much to change the law. That's been done. It's then what happens? How do you take that and do it in a way that causes public policymakers, soccer moms in Indiana, hockey moms anywhere in Canada, so forth and so on, to look at an industry like this and go, you know what? They're regulated. They act like good citizens in our neighborhood, that this provides a quality product and a quality service that's safe and consistent in terms of access, whether I like cannabis or not, why should I stand in the way of somebody else getting it? I, I feel like that's where we're at today. And unfortunately, that's caused a lot of money to come into the industry. There's a rise, there's a fall, there's a rise, there's a fall. But largely, uh, the fact that it's global now in scope um, and that it's attracted mainstream attention um, those are victories, whether we like it or not. So I, I want to share a quick, quick anecdote with you because you mentioned the cannabis attorney and how that wasn't really a thing before, you know, you created that mantle and that opportunity for a, a bunch of attorneys. And to your point, yes, I, I know I, I've spoken to several people who are in law school only to become cannabis attorneys. And so the, the quick joke I want to share with you, and not a joke, anecdote is, you know, when I was a kid, my dad always used to tell me, you need to become a lawyer. Go to law school when you grow up. You, you'd make a great lawyer. Go, go be a lawyer. And I, I was never into that. And I was like, no, I don't want to do the school and pay for it and all that stuff. And, you know, years later now, having been in the cannabis world and in the business world for a little bit, I think back and I'm like, well, if I knew that cannabis attorney would have been a thing, I probably would have done it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I guess uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, anyway, I want to I, I want to ask you because I'm hearing you bring up a really important thing of, of you know, the, the decades of advocacy and activism and really courage and risk-taking that happened to pave the way for an industry to even be able to exist. And I'll reserve my judgment for now on what it is today. And I, I, I hear you say that part of what your, what it sounds like your mission is right now, or your directive is to bring the mainstream to cannabis and to show them that, Hey, your stigma and all your prejudices and and what you may have thought to be true about this isn't in line with reality so you know you it sounds to me like you're trying to get kind of the mainstream 
human to see this plant and this industry as something virtuous. And the question I'll ask you to, to follow up on that is, I'm curious, what is it like to be you? You know, like what's a day in the life, you know, because I, I imagine you're involved in many different projects, you know, in addition to running the law firm and working with clients and, you know, having been a university professor and, and doing advocacy work, like, I, I, help me understand what it's like to be Bob Hoban. Well, uh, no, it, 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 it's a it's a it's a good question, and uh, if I figure that out, I'll, I'll let you know. I, I'm just kidding about that. Uh, a day in the life. Before I get there, just just one other note. I mean, our our good common friend and and my colleague at the law firm, Noah Potter, you know, is a great example of someone who's worked so hard and so long to effectuate policy change, and you know. Uh, and he continues to do so in the psychedelics arena, which is another area that's burgeoning right now that I don't think he would have seen come to, coming to fruition the way it's coming. And I, I still wonder if if the activist folks are pleased with the result. I would say that my mission, I think you describe it well, but it's to create a regulated and commercialized industry. A lot of people don't like the sounds of that because that reeks of big marijuana. Um, to me, that reeks of standardization and you know, entitlement to stand shoulder to shoulder with other businesses as a member of a community, whether that's a business community or otherwise. So it's different strokes for different folks. And, you know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Everybody kind of gets along uh, in a certain respect, but not everybody has the same vision of what it is, what it should be, or, or, or how it should be going forward. Uh, and that has required a lot of dialogue, which is what I appreciate the most, is when you engage in dialogue over those regulatory processes and you enact social equity measures and the like, and make sure that there are opportunities for minorities and other folk that have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs, uh, particularly as I do a lot of work in Latin America these days. Talk about the war on drugs and its impact on a particular region of the world. And you have Americans going in, North Americans uh, from Canada as well, going in and saying, here's how we'd like to help you with cannabis. You know, uh, I don't need any more of your help, uh, thank you very much, uh, is, is effectively the response you get. But it, it, it does create a common uh, dialogue about how to develop these things. Um, that's, that's kind of a segue to what is a typical day? I mean, at, at the law firm, I'm intimately involved in running uh, the day-to-day the -day of the law firm. Uh, working with clients, onboarding new clients, identifying specific projects that I can help in. Uh, I help primarily at the law firm with high-level strategy discussions with our clients. I help drive their business planning, their expansion plans, their discussions. Who should they merge with, acquire, approach, and lead those negotiations? Uh, we get involved in a number of different legal issues at the law firm in our five distinct practice areas, which are litigation, IP, corporate finance, tax, um, our international practice group, our marijuana and our hemp regulatory practice groups. Um, so involved in those things on a substantive level, involved um, at policy making, uh, having worked with over 35 countries around the world on law and regulation. Um, we have a consulting uh, a firm that is attached to us called Gateway Proven Strategies, GPS, um, as it's known which works with Fortune 500 companies to help them evaluate what is an opportunity to access this industry or to enter this space. Uh, a good example of that is Colgate's most recent uh, introduction of toothpaste with hemp seed oil in it. Why hemp seed oil? 
Well, I can't tell you the ins and outs of that, but I can tell you that it was a much deliberated process involved with mitigation of risk and exposure to settle on that. And we'll see how it does. But those folks do want to get into the space very deeply. Um, looking at policy uh, opportunities around the world, influencing the United Nations. We understand what's coming up in, in Vienna uh, in December in terms of the Convention on Narcotics and that committee and how it will meet and perceive certain recommendations from our World Health Organization as it relates to cannabinoids. And then I do uh, a, a lot of work with, um, with our clients in a business capacity. I serve uh, at oftentimes as sort of an interim CEO or an outsourced person um, to provide more than legal professional services to help them get organized, to help develop their business plan and chart their trajectory. So um, there's a lot of things we do on a regular basis. Uh, and I happen to be at the nerve center of all of them. And the good news is when you're the boss, you kind of get to pick and choose which interesting things you get involved in. Um, but uh, there's no, no lack of interesting things to go around. Amazing. That's super cool. And it really, you know, the reason I asked this question is because you sit in a really unique seat where you get, there's not too many people in the world who are working on some of the stuff that you're working on. And it's a really unique position to be in and, and a really cool position to be in. And I, I, I will take a moment just to shout out Noah Potter as well, because he did introduce us and, and also Noah has been a pioneer in psychedelic and cannabis reform and justice issues and has been doing it for decades in New York and paved the way for a guy like me to be able to even exist. And beyond that has, you know, educated me a ton and has always supported my efforts. So shout out to Noah for fighting the good fight and continuing to do so. Anyway, go, going back to, to some of the work you're doing, gosh, I, I'm just like, um, where do I even dig into that? It's such a rich uh, mix of unique and interesting business challenges that you get to see. So well, and, I, and Mike, this is, this is something that, that occurs to me when I go to places. For example, I was in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum in January. Uh, and there was a couple cannabis gatherings and events. The Canatech, our good friends uh, from Israel, put on a wonderful event there. And uh, there was a cannabis conclave event from uh, several European groups. My, my whole point is when you come in and you say, I've done X and Y and Z, they look at you and they look at you and they think you're just full of it. There's no possible way. This is all brand new. And then, of course, they can go look you up and talk to other people and validate it. But to your point, we've gotten involved by design into so many different things. It almost sounds like it's fiction because to most people, this is all brand new. How is it possible that you've been involved in all of these different things and done it for like 10 years, uh, which is like dog years in our space, right? For every year that we work uh, and you know, this firsthand, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's extremely intense uh, and it moves on, but getting involved in different things is what keeps my mind happy. Uh, but also it's, it's lending credibility because one of the biggest challenges you find as a lawyer is if you're an industry expert, as we perceive ourselves to be, and we've demonstrated in this industry, sometimes it's hard to break through that box of, uh, oh, you're a lawyer. I'm going to come to you when I have a regulatory question or when I need a deal structured, so forth and so on. Well, if you're going to wait till then 
you're probably going to make a bunch of mistakes. Let me help you avoid those landmines. But it's not intuitive to go to a lawyer for business planning advice in an industry that everybody tries to compare to other industries. And it just is not that. You know it firsthand. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a great point. And that's something I mentioned in my book, The Cannabis Business Book, which is on Amazon right now, which is this industry is unlike any other. And if you think it's like every other industry, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. And, you know, there, the fact of the matter is a lot of this stuff has never been done before. And so, you know, it's, I believe, crucial and critical, especially if you're new in, in the space or trying to deploy, you know, significant capital in it to get advisors like, you know, like you, like Bob Hoban or someone from the Hoban Law Group who actually has the experience, you know, and actually has been doing it for years and will know those nuances and can guide you to avoid the landmines. And beyond that can add strategic resources because they live and breathe in the cannabis space and are aware of all these, you know, Dis seemingly disconnected happenings that are going on all over the world. I, I guess with that being said, I I'm wondering, well, I have two questions that come to mind. One is on the activism side of things. And as we talk about legal reform, you know, I, I hear you say that your interest is in building a true industry and an industry that's treated fairly, just like other industries are which you know, I imagine will, will have something to do with banking and taxation and all that kind of stuff. But I'm wondering, let's say we get there, whether it's you know, one year, two year, five, 10 years from now, I, I, it seems to me like that's inevitable that we will get there. Although I, I'm curious to hear your take on that and, and maybe what timeline you see. But on the flip side of that, I'm wondering what's gonna happen to all the people who are incarcerated for cannabis related offenses and how do we as a community as an industry as a movement make sure that those folks don't get left behind and that they get made whole in some way that that's a that's a great question i mean we to your point on the idea of will this become big business it's inevitable. If there's money to make in a particular industry, then some semblance of big business will migrate to that, even to fringe or emerging or, or, or disruptive industries. That's a fact. Uh, we hear a lot of talk about CBD, for example, as it comes from hemp, and people are upset that the FDA was recognized specifically in the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, because there's some notion that if we didn't officially recognize the FDA had purview over a consumable on a national scale, that it could be free and, and easy and, and nothing would have to be regulated. That's just not the world we live in, uh, unfortunately. So I, 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 I do think that measures need to be put in place from a regulatory perspective to ensure that there are opportunities for those folks that have been affected uh, and to create opportunities, particularly because of the war on drugs and its lasting impact. Um, but make no mistake about it, this is going to be big business. That doesn't mean each individual dispensary store or, or the like is going to be uh, part of a conglomerate. Uh, 
Uh, in fact, maybe it, it won't. But the production supply chain, what ultimately comes out of it for novel products that are used for export and global distribution, those will absolutely have to be done by large business that has experience in that world and understands the, the underlying uh, certifications and requirements for clean, consumable product on anything, whether that's cannabis or whether that's, you know, uh, an additive for a particular beverage or, or medicine. Uh, it's all relatively similar. Um, there are four policy lanes, though. This is the thing. If you think about the cannabis plant, there's four distinct policy lanes that regulate the uses that come from that plant. You've got the industrial lane, kind of self-explanatory, not made for human consumables. That's building materials, that's fuels, that's plastics, and the like. And that list goes on and on and on to the tune of about 50,000 uses if you read. The next three are really where the rubber meets the road. I've got our over-the-counter marijuana lane. That's the dispensary system. The dispensary system has taken hold in multiple jurisdictions around the world. In other words, I can buy a flower across a counter. I can buy an oil derived from that flower or edibles and things that are made from a flower with a psychoactive THC heavy ingredient. That is a necessary lane. But that's not necessarily a medical or a medicinal lane, not doubting the medicinal value or impact even for a second, but medical marijuana in that context simply means safe, consistent quality access to a product, not necessarily that the person you're buying it from can say, use this because it will eliminate your anxiety or depression. They probably do that, the so-called bud tenders, but they're not necessarily licensed or qualified to do that except by experience. But that lane needs to exist because somebody else doesn't want to take a pill or use a, a, a CBD product that doesn't have psychoactive contents. So it's going to use that lane. So then the third and the fourth lane are uh, the nutraceuticals lane, foods and supplements, non-psychoactive cannabinoids, primarily derived from industrial hemp, um, sold online and mainstream retail all around the world. Um, and then you've got your pharmaceutical lane. All four of those, three of those consumable lanes work together to provide the broadest access to both patients and other people that use this product. So why wouldn't we want it to be commercialized as long as all of those lanes will be respected and thus far they have been. Now, when you bring that forward and you view it through a criminal justice lens, I don't view it through a criminal justice lens necessarily because I view the plant as having four distinct uses or four distinct commodity type lanes, as I just tried to describe. Unfortunately, in the past, because of our, of our, um, of our CSA here in the United States and, and criminal justice and you know, some of the social inequities and racism, frankly, that goes behind that, has put a lot of people in jail for and, and cut off opportunities. So there's some projects out there. We've seen the last prisoner project uh, initiated by our good friend, Steve D'Angelo. Uh, uh, the executive director of that program is one of our fine IP attorneys, Sarah Gersten. Um, at the end of the day, there are governors and mayors around the country who have uh, eliminated uh, time as time served uh, for people uh, serving time related to cannabis offenses. And then others that um, ultimately need to petition and get through a process. So those things need to get fixed. There's no question about it. But it's not the first time in history that something was illegal for so long, and then all of a sudden it's not legal. Look at, you know, apartheid, for example, in South Africa. Another example of something that was easy to uh, run afoul of the law and be jailed for. A great example, of course, is Nelson Mandela. And then when the law changed, all of a sudden you had people serving time for something that's now legal. So it's a little bit 
uh, apples and oranges, but there are instructive ways that the, that social justice has been enacted when something that had been illegal for so long is all of a sudden made legal. Uh, and I think we can help that by enacting social equity programs, um, balancing programs as it relates to you know, who makes up the components of a particular application in a given state, and eliminating some financial barriers to entry so that it's not just big business driven, but it sort of has that mandate that it goes to address some of the social ills that fall from this. So I know that's a mouthful, but there's a lot to digest there when you think about the policy, as I view the policy, four policy lanes. None of those policy lanes have anything to do with criminal justice. And that's where it all started. So you have to go back to that if you're going to try to right any of the wrongs and establish a credible industry. Wow, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm curious, and feel free to say no or to pass on this one. I'm curious if you have a view on when we might see some, some federal movement, whether it's on banking or or a schedule, hopefully a reschedule or descheduling, um, or any kind of significant federal change in legal standing, um, or just you know, if you don't want to speak on that, um, perhaps yeah. what what will we see after November when we have hopefully a bunch more states moving forward, moving towards cannabis freedom. What's the future of the cannabis legal landscape looking like? Well, to your point, more and more states are enacting uh, legalization measures that come with some sort of commercial dispensation model. Um, so we'll see. I think there's three to five states that, uh, as I understand it, that, that have things on the ballot uh, this November. Um, as we look at those, that will create additional opportunities in those states and further cement the fact that this is an essential business. Let's not forget that designation uh, that we've all talked about quite a bit over these COVID days. But, you know, as it relates to federal change, look, we've got an election in November. And, you know, for as um, politically divided this country uh, seems to be, and, and maybe increasingly so, particularly uh, under the COVID scenario, um, I don't think it's fair to say that our election is anything but a cost toss of the coin. I just, I don't see any polling numbers that would indicate that this is not sort of a 50-50 chance for either Joe Biden or Donald Trump to win a, a, another term. Um, and that will dictate federal policy going forward. And let's not forget that a change to a Democrat regime is not necessarily the best thing for cannabis. Um, I've said this before, and I stand by it. Had Hillary Clinton been elected, uh, at our last election, I'm not sure we'd be talking about a dispensary system anymore. I believe she's announced that the pathway would have been towards a pharmaceutical rescheduling model, which still would have required some sort of, you know, uh, exception to federal law for the state dispensary systems to exist. So I don't know if that was a better scenario or a worse scenario. Plus, it really would have empowered pharmaceutical companies to control the topic. I'm not so sure Joe Biden comes from a different mindset. Uh, we've heard Joe Biden talk about marijuana and his solution as of what I've seen recently was uh, at the end of the day, uh, if you get arrested, you shouldn't go to jail, but you should be put in a mandatory rehab program. Um, that's still an old mindset. That might be applicable to other addictive drugs or drugs that create chemical dependencies. But, you know, by most accounts, marijuana doesn't necessarily fall in that category. So I don't know what's going to happen. And your guess is as good as mine. I do feel like... Um, a business mentality 
that the Republicans have seemingly portrayed, although that's vacillated all over the place, might be the best mentality for change uh, at the federal level, but that remains to be seen. But I've also said that we don't necessarily need federal legalization. We need federal criminal justice relief that, that ripples through the state so people don't get arrested for cannabis anymore. But at the same time, why would we force uh, a conservative state in the South, for example, to adopt a marijuana legalization program? If they don't want it, and that that's the, the, the sentiment of their politicians and their populace, why force it down their throats? That's why I like the States Act, as it's become known, which was driven in part by our senator, a Republican from Colorado, Cory Gardner, who takes a pragmatic states' rights and jobs approach to the issue. I think that's a sensible way to eliminate federal repercussions from operating in this industry, and it creates a more robust industry. Here's why. Because I got to re replicate the supply chain state by state by state by state. That creates more, more jobs because it doesn't allow for the efficiencies that interstate commerce of cannabis would allow for. If there's more jobs, more people rely on cannabis for their income in some part, and it becomes more entrenched in our day to day and therefore more accepted. So I don't necessarily think that federal legalization needs to happen and that we need to have interstate commerce in it. And I do think the States Act is, is probably one of the best ways to address it. Now, what we might see in the short term, and we heard it pass through the House in recent days, and it's going to go to the Senate, and if it hasn't died already, it probably will die. And that's a, a, a package that would allow the stimulus funds to be accessible by the cannabis industry. But it also contains this banking bill, this, 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 this safe banking bill concept that allows banks to just openly deal with Schedule One marijuana providers and bank the money. It's better for the government to have those dollars tracked. It's better for the industry to have those dollars tracked. Why it continues to turn the other way and say, operate in cash, uh, or at least pay banks a punitive amount to have a bank account. Um, why they think that that's okay uh, and in the public's best interest doesn't occur to me to make any sense, but that's probably the most realistic thing that we have in the short term. Although, wouldn't, would it surprise you if Donald Trump a week before the election says, vote for me and I'll legalize cannabis? It sure as heck wouldn't surprise me because anything goes these days, unfortunately, in our political world. Totally. I, you know, I think he's almost at the level where everything he does is surprising and not surprising at the same time in this incredible paradoxical way. But uh, you mentioned cannabis becoming recognized for being essential. And you have a podcast that's all about cannabis and the coronavirus, what you need to know. So I just wanted to ask you really quickly, you know, kind of what's the latest there? Or, you know, is, uh, you know, I, I've asked just about everyone who's been on the podcast so far here of how COVID has infected their business. And the answers have ranged from dramatically to not at all. So I'm just curious from, from where you sit, what's the latest on that? Well, certainly, uh, and thank you for the shout out on that. Yes, we, we launched a podcast we call The Hoban Minute. Uh, we've got uh, about 40 episodes uh, and uh, it's gotten a lot of listener, listeners uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, we didn't intend to come out focused on COVID and cannabis, but that's just how uh, time uh, played its hand for us. Um, as it relates to you know, the scenario we saw in recent days, that uh, that the New York Post, I think, was the first article to come out that said cannabis does have the ability to um, 
mitigate human beings' potential, not exposure to the risk, but to the infection risk. In other words, the way it's been described to me is if you take two pieces of um, Velcro, they stick together because one side hooks into the other side. But if you turn one side over, they don't stick together. Um, the sort of non-medical or scientific way to describe what I think cannabis can do as it relates to COVID is it turns that Velcro upside down so it has nothing to stick to. And therefore, the virus doesn't attach itself to your body. That might be a lawyer's uh, bastardization of, of, of what, it, what it really does, but that's how it's been described to me. And it makes sense, uh, given the studies that I've read. And we know that the Federal National Institute of Health has instituted a task force to study this. That began weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Several of our clients were invited to, to be on that, to study that exact issue. So it seems to be well known. Now that continues to drive cannabis forward. We've had challenges uh, economically with the interruption of the supply chain, um, but it's an essential business on the marijuana side. Um, hemp uh, distribution outlets have been um, minimized because a lot of their, their, their retail had been focused on brick and mortar and trade shows recently. So uh, it's back to sort of online focus primarily. Um, although many of our clients say that they have not seen a dip in sales, maybe even an increase with some of these false notions that cannabis cures COVID versus you know, the, the scientific element that I tried to describe a minute ago. But I, I think all of this leads to um, a very bright future for cannabis. Let's not forget the commercial regulated industry grew up in our most recent recession, right? Law firms, businesses across the world were laying people off left and right. Our law firm continued to grow. Our clients continued to grow. The businesses began to establish themselves during an economic downturn. Um, that's one thing. Second thing, if we look at history, if you look at the fact that coming out of the Great Depression, alcohol prohibition was lifted as an economic driver. Um, that's probably something that presents a bright upside for the cannabis industry, whether that happens in the U.S. or continues to happen in other countries, because they sure as heck see it. If you look at the Colombian government just came out and said, instead of just for export, we're going to allow a domestic distribution model for an economic driver. We had the president of Costa Rica three weeks ago come out without telling anyone and said he believes that Canyamo, industrial hemp, will lead them out of this economic downturn. We see other countries turning to cannabis as an economic driver. Um, I think that that presents enormous economic opportunities that at least, you know, you don't have to look at, it, at the economics. It's just, it's the economic driver that causes politicians to make decisions. And if politicians are motivated to make a decision based on economics versus, on, versus social justice and what's right from a medical and, a, and that safe access perspective, then so be it. You have to take what you get. So I do think that it, can, it will continue to increase uh, in, in stature and organization uh, and global impact because of those things. And we're seeing it happen in real time. Our, our, our consulting firm just got a call from a Middle Eastern government two weeks ago to say, how can you help us understand what our options even are? Um, you know, this particular Middle Eastern country was described as the Boulder, Colorado of the Middle East. I don't know what that quite means, but perhaps they, they, uh, they, they see some things in a, in a more progressive way and, and you know, we'll help them try to understand it. So um, I see uh, things looking up for the industry as a whole, but we got to get through this first and got to get people back to work. I feel so badly for hospitality workers 
for restaurant workers, restaurant owners, small business owners that couldn't keep their doors open. Uh, and I don't know how that you can recover for that. Uh, and hopefully that's where our federal government can continue to step in, even if it's modest sums, just to keep people's lights on. Got it. And Bob, I want to ask you, because you've achieved so much in this industry, what's your superpower that's made that possible for you? <laughs> superpower. You know what? I, I do have to tell you, um, I'm not married to my particular view of how things have to be. I'm married to a pragmatic view that's reasonable and creates a level playing field from a regulatory perspective. I think so many folks fail to succeed or fail, I guess is the right way to put it in this industry, simply because they're too wed to their vision of how things have to be. That's idealistic. And that is certainly something that, that I, I can't second guess or say is right or wrong, but I've seen it lead most people to, uh, to not being able to succeed. I wouldn't say that, you know, I, I blow with the wind because I certainly don't. A pragmatic, reasonable approach, uh, but I don't assert my own beliefs and my own um, thinking of where this has to go. I'm not wed to that. I'm wed to working with people that want to do things the right way and create good products and create access and that are team players that will work with other people. Yes, in a competitive environment, a very competitive environment, but people that won't just say, this is mine, you can't touch it, and it's going to be this way, uh, and I'm going to impose my will on you. I've never, I've never done that. I've never tried to do that. And if that's a superpower, I sure as heck have it. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm hearing that, you know, it's a flexibility and an open-mindedness and, you know, I, I guess what, what I will characterize as a lack of ego in, you know, being willing to not have to be right all the time and not have to have things your way and, and being practical about, hey, let's, let's look at the evidence and be objective and move forward in a productive way instead of let's do things my way, which is you know, in cannabis and in business, I, I don't think that that attitude gets people very far. So no, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that 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 is a that is a, a quality that uh, is, is lacking, as a general rule in our industry. Um, although it improves as people get humbled. And, you know, I always like to say, how can you learn anything? If you're always right? You've got to be wrong to learn something. If you always write, that doesn't mean you're always right. It just means nobody ever challenged you and you're going to go fail on your own. So. Right, right, right. And it's, it's something I just mentioned in, in a previous episode is, you know, in order to achieve mastery in anything or just to learn, you have to have the humility to, to, to be a student and to admit that I don't know everything. I can learn. There's more for me to learn. So uh, I, I heard a little of that in your, in your answer. Anyway, I want to shift gears and go in the weeds and uh, offer you or give you my best attempt to, to take you even higher and offer you some kind of support, insight, or inspiration through some coaching. And if you're willing to, to dance with me here in the coaching dance, I would love to, to shift gears and ask you 
what's your biggest business challenge right now, Bob? The, the biggest business, there's two big challenges right now. And, and I have to really think about it to, to rank them. The, the first is how to operate as an American-based company in a global environment in this space. When America has such a stigma for its drug war uh, and, and things that have flown from them, and just the, the idea that uh, you know, Americans tend to go out and impose their will on other people around the world. Uh, so to come out and to say, I'm here to, to work with you and to help you and share lessons so we can avoid landmines together, not to tell you how to do it, that's a particular challenge. And then the second challenge is somewhat related, and that is how do you build a business, um, uh, continue to grow a business when so many people come in every week and every day and every month and say that they're an expert in this industry. And you know darn well that they're not experts. That's not saying that I'm an expert and they're not, but you know darn well they don't have the experience because they can't possibly have the experience. And to our point earlier, it's not, uh, your grandfather's industry. It's a different industry um, than, than most people anticipate. So to understand that you do need expertise within the industry, uh, and that can come in all shapes and sizes, and that you simply can't come in with outside experience and go, I'm a cannabis industry expert because I have a skill set that lends itself well to the industry. So they're very much aligned, but they're different topics. But those are major challenges. So I'm hearing the first one is how to operate as an American company. And I'm, I'm guessing this is more of an issue in the, as the, the industry goes more international, which has been happening for the last few years and how to operate with that uh, kind of association that, you know, people abroad may have of Americans that's not necessarily so pleasant. So that, that's one. And then the second one, I, I kind of need you to, to give me a little more on that because the second one was about, you know, all of these people are constantly coming in from other industries and claiming to be experts. And so is the challenge competing with them and, and kind of having your expertise recognized or what's, what's the actual challenge there for you? What's the real question there? A lot of what we've done to succeed over the years is we've saved people from themselves. We've helped bring context and, and, and reason to their decisions, not just based on what their heart or their ego tells them to do, especially as it relates to this space. So for example, if you were an investor coming into the space for the last 18 to 24 months, the investors probably would have told you that investing in extraction infrastructure for CBD is the, you know, the hot topic, go in that direction. Well, that was saturated, oversaturated over two years ago. But this new expert who comes and learns about CBD and says, by all my metrics, this is the place to be, they have no context. So it is a competition thing on one hand, how do you, but, but fundamentally, how do I get to that client before they do? under the guise of let me save you from yourself and save you from making a mistake that I know you're going to make. Not because I'm guessing, because there are repeatable patterns in this industry and we've been around long enough to, to identify and standardize those patterns. 
Um, so it's a challenge for competition. It's a challenge for business, but it's also a challenge for folks within the industry to achieve credibility with those coming in from the outside, especially if they've got better pedigree, uh, longer corporate experience and the like. Does that, uh, does that flesh it out a little bit better? Yes, yes. And it actually, yes, thank you. So it actually brings up a question that I meant to ask you and forgot, which is, you know, nowadays I, I've seen in recent years, a lot of the white shoe law firms and kind of the big uh, mainstream corporate law firms also start playing in the cannabis space. And I, I was curious what it's like to, to have to compete against them when, you know, they, I'm guessing, don't really have much cannabis experience for the most part, but I'm going to, I'm going to table that for now. Um, both of these questions are in the, the, the world of client acquisition, business development, business growth. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's either one that feels more difficult or scary or, important for you and then i would i would say let's focus on that one for for the rest of our time here i, I think it's probably the business growth part of it uh, because at the end of the day um it's a it's a new industry even though we've been working in it for an extended period of time and as we continue to grow our business uh when is it time to stop growing when is it you know it, it really so many questions that are are perhaps daunting have to do with growth particularly with increased, uh, when do you just say, we're just going to stop growing um, in, in light of all these things and stay put uh, or move sideways versus continuing to move forward. Uh, so that perhaps is a challenge that, uh, that is the most daunting. Very interesting. So I'm hearing then, when is enough? When is enough enough? When do we stop growing? When do we stop pursuing growth? Or when do we maybe not deprioritize growth as the end all be all? Is that fair? Is that a fair? Am I hearing you right? In in part, when is yeah? When is growth simply for growth's sake? When is it simply capitalizing on an opportunity that you're equipped? to do from both a human resource personnel and an expertise perspective. Um, you know, and it, and it comes down a lot to just what are people's perspectives on their business model? You've seen very successful small law firms, boutique law firms, boutique consulting firms. Um, is that the right answer for this industry? Or is the idea to sort of amass as much experience and expertise as possible and put it out there on, uh, from the mountaintop so that you can help people save them from themselves. Uh, that's, you know, that's a lot of what we do, a lot of that, that handholding. Um, and if they go to another firm that is a newly created cannabis division, they're probably going to get overcharged and they're not going to leave with the results that they should get, not because those other people weren't great service providers or really smart and really experienced, but because they didn't understand how this industry works. And it is a unique animal. Got it. So I, I, I just heard you offer two potential solutions to, to the question. And I guess my question for you would be, what is the outcome for which you are optimizing? You know, because if it's profit or if it's 
whatever, you know, some financial measurable metric, you know, I think that, that question of which growth do we want to pursue or how much growth do we want to pursue, you know, it can, it can become just a math equation or a math problem of sorts. But what I'm hearing from you a little more of is, is the mission that you mentioned earlier. And what, so, so my, my invitation for you would be to think about what is really, what's the why? And then step two would kind of be like, well, what's the metric or the KPI around that why? Because, you know, you talk about growth and I'm actually not clear on what does growth mean to you? What is growth? You know, when you say growth, what does that mean? Expansion. It means expansion into different regions to, to provide the expertise. The, the, the why is the mission, right? Um, everybody has a family to feed somehow, some way, uh, or, or bills to pay. Um, but, you know, we, we're pretty unique in that our, our law firm is, is fairly mission-driven. Uh, our financial success comes with helping people. We're service providers. If we can deliver quality services to clients uh, and help them succeed, then in turn, financially, we'll succeed as well. Um, but that's not the driver. The driver is, like I said, I, I, I've seen so many people come into this industry, not understand it, expend enormous amounts of capital, invest into it without any due diligence or understanding of what the industry is, not being misled by people, because I don't think people intentionally mislead all the time. Certainly it happens. I think it, it's people believe that they understand the industry because they've touched it for a little bit and been to a couple events or conferences. Um, I go back to what I said several times, and that is I feel the best when we've helped people um, defend themselves against their own impulses and intuition, which is not always correct. I'd rather get to a company trying to get into this space and help them succeed and survive than allow them to go do it with uh, industry expert, quote unquote, X, who has only been around for two years and might be really smart and experienced, but doesn't even have a, a quarter of the depth, not that Bob Hoban personally has, but that our law firm and our extended network has. I want to bring as many people into our network as possible because the overwhelming result has been successful companies and businesses, which means successful families, which means people that are happy with their jobs, which means that the industry is in fact advancing. That's what our why is. And that's, and if we do that, yes, we make some money, but that's not why we do it. So to expand is to bring that expertise, that mission, um, almost like Johnny Appleseed, but with hemp seeds. Let's plant hemp seeds everywhere. Let the hemp grow and then tell people what to do with it. Nice. So what's the one thing that you can do that will make it as easy as possible or as efficient as possible to bring as many people into that network and into that education as, as possible. Well, and, and that's something I think we've done uh, extraordinarily well is utilize uh, social media and, and, and sort of a educational campaign to get our word out there. We have our attorneys write regularly. Uh, uh, we have our podcast, we have our newsletter, we reach hundreds of thousands of people each week. And, you know, some people 
some people cynically on the outside might say, well, that's just for business development purposes. And certainly it has that effect, but it's an educational component. Look at this, because this is the reality of the situation. Don't look at that. That's what we're trying to effectuate. And I think, you know, to your point, that's how we're, 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 we're overcoming this challenge, at least in part, is by putting out as much educational, free content as possible so that people can understand um, what their options are, what their entry points are, what's real and what's not. You talked about perspective earlier, and I've always, I got this sort of little silly analogy, but as a New Yorker, you probably appreciate this. If you take a, a nice New York pizza and you put it in a box and you open the box, what's in the middle of that pizza? There's a little plastic thing in the middle. Why is that plastic thing there? So that the cheese doesn't stick to the box because that'll ruin that beautiful thin crust pizza. I get to stand on that plastic thing and look out at the pizza. That's the perspective that we got. Everybody else is stuck in a pool of oil or under the cheese or under the pepperoni or on one particular slice. I get to stand in the middle and see that. If I can convey that, and the only way to convey that without just saying, hey, we know everything, we're the best, is to demonstrate that through our educational efforts and our thought leadership efforts. So that is, I think the answer to your question is, that's what we're doing to help right the ship but that doesn't always um, save people from making poor decisions about who they retain as guides in this industry. And also the notion that lawyers can be your guides. Lawyers are not just tools in a toolbox to use as a wedge in litigation or get a deal done. But in this case, lawyers, particularly ones that have been around, uh, we're industry experts. And that's a part that I think uh, we try to convey through our educational platform. I love the, the pizza analogy or, or metaphor i'm not sure um but i i i as a new yorker i appreciate that and i'm uh, <laughs> i'm i'm curious though i'm not really hearing i'm, I'm not hearing a, a major challenge here because it sounds to me like you kind of are already doing what it is you need to be doing for this growth so I'm wondering if there's something that I'm missing here or if there's something deeper here that, you know, maybe there's a roadblock uh, or, or, or something else at play here. Well, I suppose it, it's, it's, we're doing it, but how do you get that information that we put out there to be recognized for what it is? Accurate, unbiased, real-time industry expertise, not just one channel of one company trying to uh, provide content for marketing purposes so it can just generate business. Yes, that's the result of the efforts, but that's not why you do the efforts. You do the efforts because you want to be the leader by being honest brokers and uh, of, of information and to help people succeed. Um, maybe that's the challenge specifically as you dwell on it is, yes, we're doing what we can to overcome that, but how do you, the challenge is how do you get that information to be received for its intended purpose, not to be cynically viewed as, this is a lawyer putting out a personal injury commercial saying, you know, call Frank Azar because here's my rec and here's my check. It's not that at all. In fact, it's, it's, it's the exact opposite of that. And yes, lawyers can be benevolent uh, and, and, and have, you know, more altruistic purposes, uh, although we don't always see that. Right, right. So it's, how do you get the recognition from potential clients or from even industry insiders or other folks who you know how do you become a resource for that is 
or, or develop the brand of, hey, these guys are the trusted resource. Their stuff is good. You know, they have quality education for, for anyone and everyone, and they know what they're talking about. They're vetted. I think that that's, that's, a, that's a very good way to sort of uh, summarize, you know, what that challenge is. And, you know, it becomes frustrating, particularly when you see uh, folks put something out there that you know is just not accurate, but it's not because they're trying to mislead. They just don't understand the information that they have and how it's played out, or they think that these things haven't been addressed before. Well, you know, this is a rich topic and I'm temp I don't have the answers for you. So sorry, spoiler alert, but you know, I think certainly it helps to do what you're doing, which is constantly putting out this material and giving away the value and giving away these resources and going on, you know, taking the opportunity, taking the time out of your day to come speak to me and, and reach the people that I can reach as well. And, you know, one thing that just comes up to me as like a small tactical thing is, and maybe you guys already do this, but, you know, even taking some of that misinformation or some of that quote unquote expert advice that isn't really accurate and, you know, in a courteous professional way, just demonstrating, hey, actually, we view things differently based on our experience. We think X, Y, and Z and, and kind of, you know, I, I'm very reluctant to tell you to like call out the people that, you know, are, are not being accurate or helpful. And then at the same time, as I say that, I'm like, well, why the hell not? Because it's, it's kind of a, a public service for the industry, you know, and I think, the industry has to self-regulate in that regard where it's, you know, one huckster can, can do a lot of damage for, for a lot of people, you know, one bad actor, one bad apple can, can spoil a bunch because there, there's so many people who are just waiting for the cannabis industry to mess up or waiting for a cannabis operator to mess something up so that they can hold it against the industry. So I don't know. I, I'm just wondering how that lands for you, and and if that if that's something you guys have done or consider or or yeah, I don't know. Just one small tactical thing. No, no, it's 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 a it's a good suggestion, um, and it is something that you know largely we've steered away from uh, pointing out that someone else is wrong or not accurate, uh, and then putting our own spin on it we sort of just defer to that second part. And we just say, here's what we're seeing and here's why. Uh, and that might help be a little bit more pointed about this thing. Um, but it also, you know, uh, runs a little bit counter to, how, to the way that we do business in the sense that I don't want to take anybody down. If you're giving out bad or less than stellar information, uh, you know, that's ultimately going to work itself out with the market's going to determine that or people are going to, uh, no longer hire that person because they can't create successful businesses. And we do uh, very well on our own, but uh, sometimes we'll, uh, it's, it's frustrating to sit back and see company X and company Y choose to work with another company who you say, I'm sure they're fine and great, but they're not going to be able to provide the breadth of experience as industry advisors, let alone as legal advisors that we can. And, uh, and then they end up coming back a year later and you have to bite your tongue and say, 
I'm, I'm not going to say I told you so. I'm not going to do that. Uh, so, you, you, so, so uh, you make a, an interesting suggestion, and it's something I will definitely take uh, take into account. So, and then again, for the record, I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just offering it as one possibility. I'm not even endorsing it myself. I'm just just trying to expand the you know the possibility set. And just quickly to respond, I think to your point, the same way that bad information and bad advice will get sorted out by the market. You know, I think the same is true on the opposite end where, you know, if you keep doing a great job, keep putting out good information, keep helping people, then the market will sort that out as well, right? And will reward that. And, you know, you'll get that repeat business and referrals and recognition. You know, it's only a matter of time. So, I mean, with that being said, I still, I, I, I don't really see exactly what the, the challenge or, you know, or roadblock is here and, and that's okay. Maybe, maybe there isn't one and that's, that's fine too. Uh, um, in any case, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have a, you have a meeting coming up. And so before we wrap, I want to ask you one more question and then offer you the floor after to, to make any kind of closing remarks. Um, and the question would be, what is the most valuable insight or most valuable part of our conversation for you today? Well, first of all, it's, it's, I'm glad to connect with you. I, 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 I'm not just saying this, but I, I, I've, I've, I've read your book. I've talked to others that have looked at it. Is it, it is a tremendous objective perspective with multiple perspectives about what this industry is. And it sort of goes to what we were talking about a minute ago is if you don't even understand what the industry is, but you must glean your own common ground from a bunch of other people's perspectives uh, and help shape that, then you don't even have a chance of succeeding in there. So uh, I, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, Thank you. perhaps one of the, uh, the things I, I, I take away, just, just reflecting on some of the successes that we've had, because you know, we work, we work, we work a lot. Uh, we work hard for our clients, we work hard for ourselves. Um, sometimes you don't sit back and take account. I start to sound like, you know, Tom Brady after the Super Bowl saying that, well, this is my, you know, my third MVP award. I haven't really, when I'm done with my playing career, I'll sit back and, and recognize all my personal achievements. Uh, so that is, it, it's nice to, to think about it from that perspective, because we don't always uh, take time to reflect on, on things that we have succeeded at and, you know, uh, either accept or pat ourselves on the back. So thank you for bringing that up, because it, it makes me go, wait a second. I'm either old or I've been doing this for a long time, but I've certainly been around for uh, around for a little bit. But uh, but that that's much appreciated to, to 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 highlight some of those things. So thank you for that. Awesome. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, and I think this is something that high achievers and highly ambitious people often uh, do is forget to to celebrate their successes along the way because they're constantly thinking, "What's the next thing I can do? What's the next goal? What's the you know, what's going to be the next success. And I think it's critically important, especially in an industry as stressful as this one and yeah. as challenging to really take some time to reflect on the achievements and more so the contributions and to celebrate that in some appropriate way. Um, and, you know, let that drive you and let that fuel you and take pride in, in the, you know, in the hard work, in the results, 
and then also you know remember that there's more work to do and we got to get back to work and and you know it's a it's a delicate balance but uh certainly as i said earlier there's you know literally few people in the world who have done what you've done i mean there's no one in the world who's done what you've done in in a variety of ways and and so i think it's important to to recognize and honor that and and be proud of that and enjoy that because other you know otherwise what's the point and obviously i know you're having a ton of fun doing all this work i that's that's really evident to me so i know you're enjoying the ride but you know it's 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 good to stop every once in a while along the journey and look out and say wow <laughs> so i i wanted to offer you that and then before i let you hop i just wanted to give you the chance to to make any closing remarks or mention anything that maybe we didn't mention or just even say something to the audience as a, as you know parting words of wisdom anything like that and feel free to pass <laughs> no i i would i would sum it up this way uh, again uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you and, and work through some of these things and, and just you know reflect a little bit um i'll close with just a, a couple of quotes from from folks that have shaped my life and you know to your point uh you know, something that uh, my, the great Jerry Garcia once said is I've opted for fun in this lifetime. Uh, that's absolutely uh, something that I live every single day about. And when I say I work hard, not to the exclusion of fun, uh, most, most of the work is a whole lot of fun, particularly in this industry. Uh, and then I'd say, you know, as it relates to our law firm and, and some of the things that we've talked about, uh, and this is Bill Graham, the longtime uh, promoter, manager of the Grateful Dead. Um, uh, we're not the best at what we do. We're the only ones that do what we do. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things that I go to sleep every night smiling about. So thanks again, Mike. I appreciate everything. That's awesome. I love that. Thank you for that. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.